Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Dr. Jill Stoddard. She is the author of the book Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. Anxiety, worry, and stress, Margaret, are those things you uh, have any familiarity with in 2020? Just a tad bit, but I'm looking forward to being liberated from them today, this very day. Today is the day. I was just telling Jill, I feel like the more that we talk about our anxiety, worry, and stress in this current moment, the more our listeners reach out to us and you guys say, can we talk more about that? So Jill is the perfect guest for today. I'm going to read you a little bit about her. Dr. Jill Stoddard is a clinical psychologist and director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. Jill is also the co-host of the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. And today, we're going to talk about her latest book, which is, again, Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance. So glad to have you with us, Jill. Thanks so much for having me, Amy and Margaret. It's great to be here. I am a fan first. Oh, really? So it's really fun to be exciting. interviewed on the podcast. <laughs> All right, we're putting 40 minutes on the clock, and you have that much time to cure us of anxiety. So, and go. <laughs> oh, boy. Tall order. This book was written before the pandemic, before the bath of anxiety, worry, and stress that we were all swimming in right now. But you, even at the time you wrote the book, you saw this as sort of a true epidemic that was kind of taking over our lives. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yep, that's right. It was written before, but certainly applies now probably more than ever. And anxiety, the statistics say will affect one in three people at some point in their lives, not just regular anxiety, I mean, anxiety that is significant enough to rise to the level of being considered an anxiety disorder which essentially means that it is interfering and functioning in some way. So that doesn't even capture, you know, the rest of us that are just super stressed out and anxious about things in general. And now they're saying since the pandemic, that number has skyrocketed. Yeah, that tracks for me. That definitely tracks. Yeah. But for women, it's actually double the rates of men. Is that correct? It is. So for women, it's nearly double the rates of men. And typically when you hear people discuss why they think that is, oftentimes they point to, well, men just don't express anxiety in the same way. They're getting angry or they're drinking. 
And that may be part of it, but I think that that explanation really ignores the social and cultural context that women live in. And the fact that, you know, your last episode, you guys were talking about how much more of a burden the pandemic has been on women because of an unequal distribution of labor at home. And you talked about the gender gap in terms of wages. And, you know, the research goes on and on and on about the ways in which women are still being affected by gender bias. And, you know, so that's, I think, (laughs) at least has to be part of the explanation for why women are struggling with anxiety at such higher rates than men. I think that's right. And we've seen on our Facebook group that people are responding to that episode extremely strongly. And I was kind of trying to play the middleman a little bit like, well, yeah, I guess for women, but men also have these stresses. And the women are like, listen, (laughs) take a seat. This stinks for me. And I'm not hearing anything else. And I'm drowning. Yeah. And I would even add to that, that in my home and with many other women I know, we're actually the primary breadwinners and we still have this same issue. Yes. That's we're hearing that from our listeners too. Like, right, like I'm the primary breadwinner. And one of our listeners was saying that my kid is sick and my spouse, her husband, is staying home with the kid, but I'm still the one that's like, call the school, call the drugstore, do this, do we have chicken soup? I'm still sort of arranging the care from afar. Exactly. Yeah. And also the complications of we have, I have a kid who just got a flu shot and is now running a fever, which is not unheard of after a flu shot. But because he's running a fever, normally you would just say, okay, stay home today, I'll send you tomorrow. Now, a fever means I need to get him and his siblings tested for coronavirus before they're allowed to reattend school. But I can't get a regular test because that comes back in eight days sometimes in New York. So I have to find someone who's doing rapid tests and we have to go. It's just like the smallest. It's like you're running a marathon and every two seconds you're spraining your ankles. (laughs) Like this was hard enough already and now... Just the small things bring you down, I feel like. Absolutely. There's just so much exhaustion and fatigue around things that we've gotten pretty good at juggling fairly automatically. And now, you know, it just, we just have to add all of these other complications to an already difficult and stressful existence. Do you think that there is any way that anxiety is more baked in the cake for women than men? Do you think it really is just a matter of expectations and how much we're juggling, especially now? So that's a great question. And these gender differences start appearing as early as six. So by six years old, girls are twice as likely to have anxiety than boys. So that may lend some credibility to that hypothesis that it's baked in. But if you also look at research about gender differences, we start getting messages very early on that, you know, boys are leaders, and it's okay to be loud and girls need to be quiet. And, you know, I think it could be both. Well, I won't say I don't know. Science doesn't know. I don't either. But science doesn't know the exact answer to that question. It's certainly possible. But we can't rule out these cultural influences because they begin so early too. And something else you talk about in the book, which we've addressed a lot on the podcast, is anxiety plays a role in our lives. We, I quote my mom all the time who used to say, you know, the anxious bunny is the one who survives. Like anxiety, it's our feeling of anxiety is not necessarily something to just be quelled and cured. That's exactly right. And I think that that is something that is more important than ever right now to remember. So when people are struggling with anxiety disorders, it's typically 
a worry or panic response to a perceived danger that isn't really there, or there's an overestimation of danger and an underestimation of your ability to cope with it. However, right now, this isn't a false alarm. You know, there is a pandemic, there is a true threat out there. And so to be anxious about all of this is exactly what human beings are built to do. And then, you know, on top of that, so there is, if you think about the benefits to anxiety, there's several. So first of all, anxiety is the thing that makes us, you know, get ready for a job interview or make sure that our kids studied for their test or to watch our kids in a crowded mall. You know, these things that essentially prepare us or prevent us from encountering danger you know, even panic, fear. So anxiety and fear are related, but slightly different. Fear is more that acute in the moment reaction versus anxiety, which is like the future oriented, what might happen up ahead. You know, if you walk off a curb and there's a car barreling toward you, you better hope you have a fear response. And it's that fight flight that comes up and hopefully you flee and not fight if it's a car situation. But, you know, we don't want to be fully liberated from anxiety or fear because we need these things to survive and to thrive. When it becomes problematic is when it's interfering, when you're not getting sleep, when you're having, you know, physiological issues, that kind of thing. But the other thing that people don't think about or realize maybe is these emotions are also telling us about what really truly matters in our lives. Like I kind of joke in the book that when you think about the last time you were laying awake at night and the wheels are spinning and you're worrying about something, you know, it's probably not whether HBO is going to go out of business. Well, it is for Amy because she's very into the vow. Yes. But that's not going to, is that how, is that possible? <laughs> you should not have introduced that worry into Amy's life because now she's going to have to call you at 3 a.m. and be like, why would you say that? Well, it's funny because I usually use Netflix as the example, but the reason I said HBO is I am also currently obsessed with the vow. Well, you oh are welcome gosh. into the warm bath that is, I mean, we are so tempted right now to just pivot to the vow and only talk about that. But we're going to try to stay on topic. The people who were sucked into that thing were trying to find a way to feel, I think, happier day to day, right? They were trying to address their reactivity. Right. And I guess we all are. You just don't have to join a cult. There are other ways to approach this. (laughs) Yes, that's not something that I would recommend. So we're coming out so far, guys, against (laughs) fighting cars and joining cults. That's our two takeaways so far, if you're keeping track. I hope that listeners are taking (laughs) notes on this. And... You know, but really, like, we all love the vow, and it brings some escape and some joy, but you're not losing sleep, wondering, worrying about whether there's going to be a season two. You'd be sad, but it's not what you get stressed and anxious about. And if you look at the content of your worries, it's generally about your health, your family, your kids, your friends, your career. It's the things you really care about. So we have this idea that we're supposed to be working really hard to feel less anxious when really we also like we ought to be leaning into this and get it with like with curiosity. Like, what is this telling me about what really matters in my life? So avoiding it is not the point. That's right. Avoiding the things that make us anxious is not how we're going to be less anxious. 
Well, let me put it this way. So the book is based on acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, and ACT has a lot of amazing metaphors and experiential exercises because it makes these concepts really accessible. And so one of the ways I like to think about this question that you just asked is if I were to hook you up to an anxiety detector machine, it doesn't really exist, but just pretend. It's like a lie detector, and it detects how anxious you are. And as long as you don't get anxious, you're going to be totally fine. But if the anxiety detector detects your anxiety up at this level of 70, say, it's going to deliver a lethal shock and you're going to die. But just don't get anxious and you'll be totally fine. What's going to happen? This is sleep when the baby sleeps. It's like, no, 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 that's not going to work. You're too worried that it's going to wake you up. Yes. It's not possible. That's right. And so think about like, it's not possible. You are going to get the lethal shock and you're going to be dead. And it is not because the incentive isn't high enough. It's because think about what you're now telling yourself about anxiety. Oh my God, this is bad. This is terrible. This is dangerous. I can't be anxious. If I'm anxious, I'm going to die. And this is essentially what we do with our emotions. So now you're anxious about anxiety. So you're anxious. So it's this interesting paradox where as long as you're unwilling to have it, it's going to be there because you're anxious about anxiety. You're stressed about having stress. And so the answer, like the liberation, isn't in fighting it to make it go away. It's in accepting that this is just part of the deal when it comes to being human. And what we find is that when we're able to learn how to make space for anxiety, and like acceptance doesn't mean liking or wanting, that would be ridiculous and would make you a masochist, and then you need to read a whole different book. But it's about making space for something that's already there anyway, when fighting it actually tends to make you more stuck and can even make it stronger. I feel like we talk about this a lot on the podcast in terms of looking at it. I talk about how I used to have really bad nightmares a lot as a kid. And my mom, who was a therapist and had some insight into this stuff, was like, you know, if something's chasing you in a dream and you turn around and look at that thing, you wake up from the dream. And it helped me stop having nightmares. And that's the root of what we do in exposure therapy. And it's facing your fear. Mm, That's it. It's exposure therapy. I couldn't think of that term. That's right. It is. Yeah. And when you face your fear, what happens is, you know, normally we have this prediction about the bad things that are going to happen. And because it seems so compelling, we avoid those things. And so that belief stays strong. But if you basically test it out, and say, okay, well, I'm afraid of heights. And I if I go up on top of the roof, I'm going to jump off or fall off. And so you never go on a roof. But if you go up on a roof, you learn like, oh, wait, that's not happening. This isn't dangerous. And so exposure is essentially teaching that the bad things our mind is telling us will happen, which, you know, our minds are designed to just protect us, right? But we learn that those things don't happen Or in some cases, when they do, like, I don't know, if you're afraid of public speaking, you might give a speech where people fall asleep, and that's your fear. But if that's the case, you know, the likelihood is less than we believe it to be. But even when it happens, it's never as bad as our mind thinks it's going to be, and we can handle it. So those are the things you learn when you experientially face those fears rather than just staying stuck up in the head. What about the sort of anxiety that comes with uncertainty? We were talking about this a couple weeks ago that our minds connect uncertainty with something to be anxious about, right? And we were talking about, can we separate that in our minds, being feeling anxious about what if schools close 
I mean, they might close, they might not, right? How, but being anxious about, like, I can understand this sort of exposure therapy to, okay, I'm going to go stand next to the spider, and then I'll be a little bit less afraid of spiders. But how do we sort of, how can we apply that sort of exposure therapy, getting more flexible with our anxiety to this moment of, I don't even know what to be anxious about? Totally. This is a great question, and you're right on. So there are three things that really drive anxiety the most. One of those is having difficulty with uncertainty. One is having a difficulty with a lack of perceived control. And interestingly, how much control you actually have doesn't matter. It's your perception of whether you have control or not. And the other is having an overinflated sense of responsibility. So, you know, you can see how these three things right now, especially for moms with that responsibility piece, that these three (laughs) things are just basically, you know, a triumvirate from hell in this pandemic. (laughs) Because there is so much uncertainty, so much out of our control, and we feel really responsible for making sure that, you know, our kids are okay, and they're getting educated and being healthy and everything else. And what people typically do when that shows up is they try to get more certain and get more control and even have, you know, take on more responsibility. And so, you know, the perfect example is internet searching. Like, I feel like I have no clue what's happening, so I'm just going to get on and I'm going to look up all the symptoms of coronavirus or I'm going to doom scroll on social media to figure out, you know, who's the next person at the White House that got diagnosed with coronavirus. And in the moment, the reason we do this is because it works. So in the moment, you feel a sense of control and certainty, but it's very short-lived, And pretty soon, the opposite ends up happening. You know, people find this all the time. Like if you have a medical symptom, like, oh, gosh, I've been real tired lately. Let me get on WebMD and see what that's about. And, you know, now you're convinced you have leukemia, but you still don't really know. So the uncertainty and the feeling of lack of control and, you know, all of that actually gets worse rather than better. And so the answer here is also acceptance, like just like with the anxiety metaphor, what we have to learn to do is open up and make space for those feelings of uncertainty and lack of control. And I should say, if there are things that you can know or can get control over that are helpful, you know, that's fine. Like, you know, a good example might be donating to a cause that you care about or volunteering if you can. You know, there are things that we can do. You know, I went to go give blood the other day because this was my way of feeling like I could do something, like some one thing I could control that was positive. And I got turned away because I had a melanoma. I'm totally fine, but I had a melanoma that was removed within the last year and they turned me away. And I almost started to cry. You're like, this (laughs) is my anxiety cure. Please take my blood. Yes. I'm like, I'm just trying to have control of one positive thing in my life. You know, but we, I got solar panels to feel like there's one tiny thing I can do about the fact that, you know, the world is on fire. So if there are things you can do that are genuinely controllable, by all means do that. But it's like getting sensitive to what are the things I really can and cannot control and can I make space for the uncertainty and the lack of control 
in those areas. And, you know, the virus and what's going to happen with schools and the economy and the world is certainly one of those areas. I have a follow-up question on that, and I'm going to ask it right after this. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, so we're talking about control, the illusion of control. And I find for myself, my anxiety manifests with some like, mild but pronounced OCD kind of behaviors to the degree from the comical, like I, when the Giants are in the Super Bowl, make cupcakes with different players' names on them. And there's a system on how we have to eat the cupcakes to control the action of the game. Did that work, by the way? Did they win? I, I hate to inform you, it worked <laughs> Perfectly. So like, this is the problem to like, if I touch this pillar, everything will be okay with my kid walking to school for, by themselves for the first time, like, definitely, completely illogical and out of control thinking. But I'm now, you know, 25 years in, let's say to this behavior, and I don't see it's going to change. And so I have changed to trying to think of it as a temperature taking on where my anxiety is overall. That the more behaviors I find creeping in that are in this category of completely illogical control freak things, that to me starts to signal to me 
It's time to start meditating more. It's time to start exercising more. It has become much more a functional barometer on how out of control my anxiety is at any given time. And I have stopped trying to eradicate it from my life because I've been trying pretty hard for a really long time and that's not working. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. And essentially what you're doing is making sure you're being mindful. You know, we do so much reactively or on autopilot and you can't change any behavior until you're first aware of it. And so using those superstitions as a way to gauge how anxious you're feeling is a great way of improving your awareness. And then once you're aware, you're better positioned to make choices about what you're going to do or not going to do based on your values, like based on the kind of life you want to live and based on the kind of person you want to be. And, you know, for those behaviors specifically, that are, you know, consistent with obsessive compulsive disorder. These are things that all humans have. So, you know, we have this diagnostic system where like, well, either you have OCD or you don't have OCD, but that's not really how it works out in the world. People have feelings, thoughts, behaviors, and sometimes the combination of those gets so severe that it's interfering. Like if you're having to touch the pole so many times that you can't get out of the house and get to your kid to school on time or get to your job on time, you know, this is a problem. And so to me, the gauge is always, you know, what am I doing and does it have a cost? So we all have things that make us feel better and there's nothing wrong with feeling better. The question is, does this thing come at a big cost? So for example, procrastination is a great one. We all procrastinate and we do it because it works. It works or we wouldn't do it. In the moment you give yourself permission to put off an aversive task, you get relief, you feel better. But of course, tomorrow you have the same amount to do and less time to do it. So it gets worse. There's a cost. If, you know, making cupcakes in a certain order with the player's names on them makes you feel better and it's not coming at any cost, then there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. If you start to see those behaviors growing and growing and growing, and now it's starting to take up an awful lot of time and you're extremely distressed if you're unable to do it, then that may be a different story. That is what it is. It's whether or not the behavior associated with that is getting in the way. I think that's really interesting. Exactly. And especially because if you're telling yourself these beliefs are, you know, bad and pathological and you shouldn't be having them, well, you know, there's a lot of research that shows the harder you try not to think about something, the more you think about it. And we can prove that for ourselves right now is if right now you try as hard as you possibly can, whatever you do, just don't think about a yellow Jeep. And now everyone listening to this is thinking about a yellow Jeep, right? And nobody was thinking about um... yellow Jeeps 30 seconds ago. But you might say, okay, that's all fine and good, but I could get rid of that thought. I'm going to think about a white van instead of thinking about a yellow Jeep. So now take the next 10 or 15 seconds and think about a white van as hard as you possibly can so that you don't think about a yellow Jeep and notice what happens. You know, that yellow Jeep is going to start poking its headlights around the corner of the white van and up above the white van. And every time you check in with yourself, is it working? Am I successfully not thinking about a yellow Jeep, your brain just created a yellow Jeep. So thought suppression does not work. What we can do instead is become observers of our thoughts and notice them and say like, okay, I'm thinking about this. And now what? You know, what's more important is how am I going to choose to respond to this thought? 
And if I, you know, if my thought is, let's see, the mortgage or the rent payment is due tomorrow, that's a thought I kind of want to listen to if I care about having a roof over my head. But if the thought is everything in the world is horrible and I should just give up and quit my job and never get out of my bed, you know, that's going to be a thought that isn't likely to lead you in the direction of the person you want to be or the life you want to live. Let's talk about your book, Be Mighty, and some of the sort of tools and processes that it offers women to help us liberate ourselves from anxiety sort of taking over our lives. Because as you were saying, the problem is when it starts to affect the choices you're making, you're not making the choices you want to make because anxiety is driving instead of, instead of I don't know what, what should be driving instead? Your values. And so, you know, what this means, so the book is based on ACT, as I said before, and the main, let's see, the main goal of ACT is to increase psychological flexibility. And what that means is our ability to show up to the present moment with everything that we're thinking, feeling, you know, whatever it is that we're experiencing fully and without defense. So, you know, this means not avoiding it, not suppressing it, not pushing it away, and then making conscious, deliberate choices about what matters in our lives. So those are values, like, not just what do I want to do, but how do I want to show up when I do it? What qualities do I want to embody? And so what we often do, which would be inflexible, is dive headfirst into the comfort zone. And of course, there's nothing wrong with the comfort zone, unless it becomes the only place that you're hanging out, and it's preventing you from really living the life you want, or being the person that you want to be. So that's always the question that we want to be asking is like, in this one moment, when I have a choice to make, what's that choice in the service of? Is it in the service of my values? Is it moving me in the direction of being the woman or friend or mother or wife or, you know, whatever role that I want to be and having the life I want? Or is it in the service of me trying to avoid difficult thoughts and feelings that I don't want to have? I think almost always it can come back to you are not clear on your priorities or you are not living your priorities. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And what this makes me think of is also how important self-compassion is. That, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. There are a lot of things that matter to us that we find important in our lives. And we can't possibly do every single one of them all the time well, which means that we have to make sacrifices. But regardless of that, how we show up, like whether we're choosing family dinner or whether we're choosing soccer, and you're right, choice is the most important word in all of that, that we're making conscious, deliberate choices rather than just being reactive and being on autopilot. And then regardless of what we choose, we get to decide how we show up and who shows up. So do I want to be somebody who is, when I'm at soccer, do I want to be pouting because I'm mad that we're not at family dinner? Or do I want to be fully present and yelling and screaming and cheering for my kid? And vice versa, if we're at family dinner and I'm discouraged that my kids aren't being more participatory in the conversation, you know, how do I want to respond to that in a way that's consistent with the kind of mom that I want to be, rather than just reacting to feelings of frustration or irritability or that kind of thing. And it is hard. I will tell you, I've been doing this for 20 years. And there are some areas where I have it down pretty easily. Parenting is the hardest for me. But if you want to be a person who 
interacts in a respectful way with your kids and you blow it, you can always go back. And then you're still modeling. I don't want to just say good, but you know, you're still modeling the kind of behavior that is important for kids to learn in terms of apologizing, taking responsibility for making mistakes, that kind of thing. All right. You're modeling your values, basically. You're modeling your values and not just sitting and beating yourself up, which isn't helping anyone. I want to push back a little bit on this because when I hear like that our values are like being good mom at soccer practice and having family dinner and you need to do this so that you can be a better parent, you know, like I, I, I feel like the me at the middle of that gets sublimated. Like I don't think, no, soccer isn't my value. Soccer is my kid's value and I had my kids, so I'm going to support that. So that part is your value. Support being a mom who is supportive of her kids is a value. Okay. But that doesn't mean sacrificing all the other things that are important to you. So the other thing we need to do, like let's say you're a working mom and your career is very important to you and being a mom is very important to you. You know, being able to set limits at home, being able to have that hard conversation with your spouse that says, hey, listen, we need to do things 50-50 here because my career is just as important as yours. And when everything doesn't go perfectly with that first conversation, being willing to show up again and again and again, it means saying yes to things related to work, even though you feel guilty. That means you're now not at home. And it's back to that choice piece. So it certainly never means sacrificing yourself at all times. It means being really in tune to all the different things that you value and making choices in service of that, not just being bullied by a sense of guilt or obligation or these other things that can get us you know, stuck and move us away from some of our values. The overinflated sense of responsibility. I wrote that down when you said that at the beginning, like, oh, that's me. I'm definitely very worried about every single person in New York City right now. I want to turn before we wrap because... I feel like this conversation has been really useful for me. Lots of good takeaways. But before we finish, I want to turn to the mom who is listening, who is home with a special needs kid who's having a really hard time during the pandemic, the mom who's a nurse and is completely depleted coming home from her shift at work and finding dirty dishes in the sink and 10 things that she has on her to-do list. And I feel like sometimes it could be like, you know, anxiety, sometimes the talk, and I feel like we've gotten beyond this generally, but I know that sometimes I feel like our listeners push back a little bit with like, okay, great, mindfulness, self-care choices, but like, how am I getting through the day? Like, what are some baseline helpful things that we can offer the listener who's like, I'm losing. Yeah. So I think the more that we can focus on each moment, rather than the huge, overwhelming picture, the better is like, what do I need to do to manage in this one moment? And I'll give you a metaphor, like nothing's going to make the dishes go away or make us feel less tired when we're a single parent or have a special needs kid, you know, those realities, anyone in those situations is going to feel stressed and anxious. That's a totally normal human response. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean there's some pathological process unfolding here. And so to be able to 
have those experiences, continue to make choices in the moment, like what's my valued choice right now? Is doing the dishes the thing that feels the most important or is allowing myself to rest on the sofa and watch the vow the more important thing? You know, the other stuff will get done. It will be dealt with. I think the other thing that comes to mind for me here is like, Life is so dang hard right now. It makes me think of a a metaphor where, you know, people always say like, hey, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Right now we have a lot of lemons, but you can't make lemonade if you don't have any sugar. Huh. Right. And, you know, this is a colleague of mine said, you know, sometimes the best you can do is just not squirt yourself in the eye with the juice. And I think that that is a really accurate metaphor for the times we are in right now. However, I also think there are always ways we can find itty bitty tiny grains of sugar. And it's those moments where your dog licks your nose, where, you know, your kid comes running down the hall screaming, mommy, when you get home from work or the grocery store. Even if five seconds later, your kids are screaming at each other and fighting and the dog's peeing in the corner of the living room. If the negative experiences, if we allow them to discount the sweet moments, then we're really in a world of hurt. And I think one of the best things we can do for ourselves right now is be open to and aware and present to these small, sweet moments that are still happening for all of us throughout the day. There may not be a lot of them. It might be 99% lemons, but there's always that 1% sugar somewhere if you open to it and let it, you know, seep in. I was a marathon runner for a long time. And so much of my running was just like, I can't make it to the finish line, but I can make it to that next lamppost. And you put together a marathon lamppost by lamppost, you know, and that to me is a big metaphor for me right now, too, which is like, how am I going to get through this? My husband lost his job. Our mortgage is coming due. We've got kids at home who are struggling and how are you going to make it through the pandemic? I think that question's got to come off your list, guys. It's got to be like, how am I going to make it to the next lamppost and put your head down and just like, and if there are crumbs of joy along the way, God bless you. But you're going to just make it bit by bit by bit. And that's the best any of us are going to do right now. I think that's exactly right. And to do your best to normalize these experiences to allow them to have some space because the more you can stop fighting against the hard feelings and negative thoughts, the less power they're going to have. That's not going to change the reality of how hard the external situations are, but we don't have control over that. We can, though, change the way that we respond to our own thoughts and feelings. So they're not adding to our suffering. Like we can have pain without having suffering if we allow there to be some space for these experiences. Jill, you have a podcast and I wanted to make sure that everybody got a chance to hear about that. I do. It's called Psychologists Off the Clock and it is myself and three other co-hosts. And we interview different experts in the field of psychology. And so we've had a number of episodes focused on surviving and thriving during the pandemic. And it's basically all, you know, science-backed ideas from psychology to help people thrive in their lives. And it is probably my most favorite professional activity because I get to talk to so many incredible people about really important things and to get it out into the world in an accessible way. 
I'll put the link to that in our show notes. And Jill, tell us a little bit about the book too, Be Mighty. We've mentioned it a couple of times, but I want you in your own words to tell us who is this book for? So this book is for women who have anxiety, worry, or stress. So I joke it's for women because who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise known as females. Thank you. Everybody present. Exactly. And, you know, the feedback I get most about the book is that people, instead of feeling like some stuffy expert is telling you what to do about your anxiety, it feels like, you know, having coffee with a friend who's like guiding you through it. It's pretty short. It's meant to be accessible. There's some fun and humor in there. So if you're very serious, if you take your anxiety seriously, this is not the book for you. But I don't think that managing anxiety needs to be something that's so serious. Everything is hard enough as it is. So it's meant to be a little bit on the lighter side, but it has a ton of applied practices for like, this is what you can do to get a handle on this. Guys, I highly recommend this book because as you said, it has lots of research, but it also, yeah, it doesn't have to feel so heavy. Bringing lightness to this struggle is what will get us through. That's right. It's practical and it's not mythical. It's practical. Jill, tell us where we can find you, your website, things like that. Yeah, you can find me at jillstoddard.com. And then basically everything I do is there. My social media accounts are all there, my blog, my books, my podcast, every podcast interview I've done as a guest. So jillstoddard.com is the best place to find me. And actually, right now, if you go to my website, you can sign up to get the first three chapters of the book for free. So we're sending those to people so that you can see if it's even your speed, you know, like if it's a good fit for you before spending any money on it. Oh, that's great. And then if you order the book from my website, I send you a free journal. Oh, because that's part of the work of the book is journaling and sort of getting curious, right, about where these things come up. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jill, this is what I needed today. I have a feeling a lot of our listeners needed it as well. So thanks so much for coming on and joining us. Yeah, I hope it was helpful. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk to you guys. It was. It was helpful for me. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Jill. Thanks. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, 
out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.